0: Of course, in Revelation, he is described as the beast. Now, there are some that don't believe in a, that a literal antichrist will come, uh, and many of them, of course, um, just interpret the scriptures differently at that point. But uh, John, as, as he described those who were antichrist, were those who didn't adhere to the gospel... But he also made a distinction in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, between the Antichrist, which was a literal person likely coming in the end times, and those who just didn't receive Christ who were referred to as Antichrists. So much of evangelical history has been pointing to a particular end time scenario that will involve a literal person emerging. We looked in Chapter 7 and chapter 9 of Daniel a few weeks back and noted that many feel that there will be sort of a revived Roman Empire in the last days that some confederation of 10 countries will, out of that confederation will emerge a leader with godlike powers that will hold sway over the hearts of many politically and, and spiritually as well. And it seems that Daniel is referring to this time period today as we continue to look at the vision revealed by the angel in Daniel chapter 11. You might remember a few weeks back we looked at how God prepares us to hear from him in chapter 10. And last week we looked at how God sovereignly is governing history and the the great history lesson that coincided with Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, and the lessons we learn from that. Today, as we look at the last 10 verses or so of Daniel 11, we note about how to keep the end in view. I'm going to read the first two verses of the angel's words in 36 and 37, and we'll uh, take it from there. It says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of God. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers, or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above all. Now, Daniel doesn't introduce and say, hey, I'm now talking about the Antichrist, He's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes in verse 35, and for just a moment, it seems like he's talking about the same person, yet the reason most everyone thinks that it's now a different person is because the events laid out in the rest of this chapter don't coincide with the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' life, and they seem to be pointing to a future event that has not occurred yet, and so many I like to say that these last 10 verses coincide with Revelation around chapters 13 through 16 and 17 where it ends up talking about the battle of Armageddon. But as we seek to keep the end in view, the first thing we must note is number one on your outline this morning, that's the process of the end. We don't have a real specific, clear timeline on how all these things will come together, and we certainly don't know the day of the hour, but there are a few things noted about the process of how God will engineer, and the first one, as we already mentioned, A, is that a literal Antichrist will likely arrive in the last days. We note that the Antichrist is extremely focused on himself, and it, we don't clearly know what he means by he will say unheard of things against the god of gods but we can be, when when you have said to someone what you just told me is unheard of it means it's preposterous and we can't even get our mind or head around why you would say such a thing in other words the things that you might think of in your mind or hear only in the movies the antichrist will literally speak with such blasphemous authority against the one true God and against his son Christ and he will arrive with evil intent on his mind in the last days. Now B under number one something else we note sort of involves his character and a way to summarize it might be this disrespect for holiness will mark his character though it's not a very widely held Interpretation Some have looked at the first part of verse 37 and wondered if the Antichrist will be Jewish in descent. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. And that sounds Jewish for a moment, the God of his fathers, because that is how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob refer to as the uh, oftentimes the God of their fathers. But outside of that one inference, most don't feel that that's uh, enough evidence to say he'll be Jewish in descent essentially uh, the thought is he will be European and likely maybe from what I said a moment ago the revived Roman Empire well then what does this verse mean where it says he'll have no regard for the God of his fathers it's likely just another way of saying he completely disrespects the way that he was brought up to worship maybe he'll come from a sort of a nominal Christian family Uh, maybe he'll come from some type of Uh, new age religion, but regardless of what he has worshipped, he has no regard for the past, uh, for the way he was taught, for the way that his parents and grandparents and others worship God. He wants to create an entire new religious world order, so to speak, focused on him as the center. And so that's the essence behind that. Now there's even more confusion about that next phrase in verse 37. It says he... He will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the one desired by women. There's no real conclusive um, consensus on what that means. That he will show no regard for the one desired by women. Some have looked at that verse and wondered if it might be saying that the Antichrist will have homosexual tendency or desire. And I, my thought is officially, I do not know. How you like that for authoritative this morning? <clears throat> a maybe more likely scenario or interpretation of that passage would be to say that regardless of his um, approach, that he is disrespectful toward women. He has no regard for women as he should have, might be a, a better way or Uh, At least a different way to look at that verse, but we really will have to wait and see how it unfolds, uh, so to speak, in the future. It's inconclusive, but those are a couple of ways to look at it. Some have even wondered if it might be saying that he will disappoint the women who have been wanting to give birth to the Messiah. Of course, a Hebrew woman doesn't believe that the Messiah, the majority of them don't believe the Messiah has yet come, and they want to maybe birth the Messiah, and the coming of this Antichrist will thwart that. That's some other thoughts of that uh, obscure passage, but nonetheless, verse 37 goes on to talk about his main object, and that he will exalt himself above them all. It's all about him the Antichrist's motivation. Now, in verse 38 and 39, we get a little more of what he will be doing. And it says this, Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He'll attract the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He'll make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land and at a price what is a, what does it mean in verse 38 as he refers to the god of fortresses what will really be his god well essentially verse 38 describes the principle c on your outline and that's this a thirst for war will mark his reign so the god of fortresses is basically him saying he'll make a god a deity out of violence out of war out of accumulating a sick tipping point of power. And so taking out other nations and hurting Israel and conniving other countries to follow Him becomes His God. Whatever you give your heart to, whatever you give your passion to, you end up worshiping at the altar of whatever has your affection. And violence, war, and treachery toward others seems to be the inference here in verse 38 about what the character of the antichrist is like well what kind of success will this end times character have in verse 40 and 42 he learn a little bit more about his process it says this at the time of the end that phrase is debated or whether it means the end of human time or the end of a, a certain epoch in history but it seems pointing toward the end of time as we know it. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. Now, basically, verses 40 through 42 and 43 describe a string of invasions and how he will anger the other nations we don't exactly know at this point who the king of the north and the south will be Uh, some have said by this time in human history the king of the north might be a reference to russia and the empire surrounding her in antiochus days it was certainly referring to what is now modern day syria and the king of the south in Antiochus' day was, of course, Egypt. It might include Libya and other parts of North Africa. Uh, we, we don't know with certainty, but they are displeased at the power that the Antichrist is having, and so they're not going to lay down. And so at the end of verse 40, it says, He will sweep through them like a flood. It, it seems to point that at the beginning of the Antichrist rule, it's almost Hitler-like in his conquering abilities. At the beginning of World War II, as Hitler began to expand the, the German reign, he had great success militarily very quickly, and there was great power that came from him, but it all came to a stop as other nations got involved and realized the seriousness of what was going on. It seems to be the way the Antichrist is headed, and then but not all will be able to not, not all will be conquered by him. It says in verse 41, he'll also invade the beautiful land. It's, of course, a reference to Israel, and it's called beautiful land because of God's great favor he has toward his chosen people, Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Amnon will be delivered from his land. Those countries that aren't modern, uh, they don't have modern designations. They're described here in verse 41 by their ancient designation and they basically refer to what is modern day Jordan and essentially it says that the antichrist doesn't have success with these nations in Jordan it doesn't tell us why he doesn't have success maybe it they cooperated with him and he just passed them maybe they had a hatred toward Israel just like he did and they, and they he Um, just didn't bother them. Maybe there was effective resistance. It just is inconclusive. Verse 42 says, He will extend His power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with Libyans and Nubians in submission. Basically, one way to phrase it is D on your outline, and that's this. He will be involved in a string of end time, invasions, victories, and setbacks that will be how it rolls and most of them however will be victories he's gaining quite the momentum and the steam as the end approaches now verse 44 and 45 describe the end of his processes and then we're going to look at some some principles to apply these truths to our life but verse 44 says but reports from the east and the North will alarm him, so war bulletins are coming out, and this godlike character is all of a sudden becoming scared. And and then it says, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. So he gets word that other nations, it says, from the east and the west are opposing him. We really shouldn't even guess what those countries were. It could describe our country on the western side that is getting fed up with reports of what's going on in the Middle Eastern war front. And it could describe as Far East Asia countries threatening to come in as well. But there is a global impact and phenomenon going on to wage war against this tyrannical leader. And then it says in verse 45, He will pitch His royal tents between the seas at the beautiful, holy mountain. What is this referring to, the beautiful, holy mountain in Scripture? Of course, would be a reference to the mountains of Jerusalem, the mountainous area. Now, there is a mountainous area referred to in Revelation chapter 16, verse 16, that's called Megiddo. And the valley of Megiddo is mentioned about 12 times in the Old Testament, but its main place in the New Testament is described in Revelation 16, and it appears to be a final place of battle, one final cosmic battle to end all battles. And the beast described in the book of Revelation would likely coincide with this world leader that we're calling the antichrist or man of lawlessness. He's basically leading the world into this little valley or it's actually a large valley in the northern part of Israel and it's essentially a mountainous highway that connects Egypt with Syria and it flows right through the beautiful land of Israel. It was Napoleon uh, in the 18th century that said the the best place to have a fight, and he of course was bloodthirsty and a fighting monger himself, the best place for a global conflict would be in the Megiddo Valley of Israel. I doubt he got that from extensive Bible study, but likely from his conquest. Well, prophecy agrees with Napoleon, and just the way the the mountainous region and the, the vast land there. It it, it seems to where the Lord is allowing this final cosmic war to take place. Now, there's an abrupt ending to this passage that I'll talk more about in a moment. It says, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. If you read the book of Revelation, you find more about how his end happens. And so let me say uh, E under number one, his demise will likely culminate in the battle of Armageddon. I believe that's the best interpretation we have as to what's going on in verse 45, that it coincides with Revelation 16, 16. And the advances for a while seem to really catapult the Antichrist into thinking I can finally conquer the world. I'll finally be able to take over everything and everybody once I lure the nations into the land of Israel, then I will have my way. But the scripture says he there, that is where he actually came to his end and no one came to his aid. I guess all the nations that thought they were going to help him, they did not show up, they weren't allowed to come, or the help that he needed was nothing compared to the army of the Lord Almighty. And we'll answer what exactly happened there uh, in just a moment. But that's a little bit about the process of this, what this passage likely teaches about our end time scenario, but maybe more important for us is how does this affect our own personal lives and what can we get from this, this afternoon and tomorrow morning in our own walk with Christ. Number two on your outline this morning about keeping the end in view is this, it involves living in light of the end. The first principle is almost obvious to us as we read verse 36 and 37 as we did a moment ago and that's simply to say no to selfish pride. He's the most self-consumed person in history and the most contemptible as well. And any time that we are full of ourselves, promoting our own name, desiring to be seen, known, admired and cherished, we are aligning ourselves with traits that are like the antichrist instead we as his people want to have traits that are aligned with christ not the antichrist you know the scripture tells us in isaiah chapter 2 verse 17 that the lord will humble those who are proud and the lord alone will be exalted god wants his name and his renown to be first and foremost why Because he knows that his name is the only one that's worthy. And what's best for us is knowing and worshiping him. We have this tendency that's sometimes subtle where we want life to be about us. Did you read about the school shooting on the Christian college in Seattle in the earlier part of this month? At Seattle Pacific University, there was a a deranged man that went on a, a brief shooting rampage. Injured two and unfortunately killed one. But the shooter was stopped as he went face to face with a student. And he was a prepared student that somehow felt it was, what he did was worth the risk because his life was likely in danger. And before the shooter could pull the trigger on him, he pulled out pepper spray, shot him in the face with the spray, and then put his arms around him and detained him until others could help. And then the authorities came. The young man's name was John Weiss. And when he, when he saw that the situation was taken care of by the authorities, he pretty much left the scene. Others wanted to know who this great hero that pro- possibly saved the lives of dozens more that day. And he began asking the administration and friends who knew that he was involved with that to not give out his name and information to the media but there was a, a leak that, that revealed to the media that, uh, the name of this young man. Well, people wanted to honor him and wanted to help him. They found out that he was engaged to be married, and so they went to the registry, the bridal registry at the Target and other stores where they'd registered and they bought out everything they could for this man's uh, wedding. And then a local news station raised thousands of dollars for his honeymoon and future, some $50,000, and when he found out his name was being uh, broadcasted and when he was getting all this money, he did release a statement and thanked everyone for their encouragement, but said that he just did what he felt like God was leading him to do, and if any, if any more money comes in, he would like that to go to the victims of the families and please no more interviews, Essentially. Now, you think about most 21, 22-year-old young men when they start seeing dollar signs, start seeing the opportunity for fame, notoriety, and cash for something that was done with a good motive. It would be hard to decline that. But the spirit of God seemed to be indwelling in this man to such a degree that said, you know what, I want God to be the center of attention, not me. We have to resist that subtle tendency to raise our flag for ourself and avoid this spirit of the antichrist something else we see in this passage in verse 39 is how other nations joined up with him and it's a it's a principle be on your outline that reminds us to watch who you run with now revelation teaches that unless your name is written in the book of life you will worship the antichrist in the end times that's what revelation 13 and 14 show and so all these nations that did not know Christ began to align themselves with him. And he was the powerful one. But it's a reminder to us to be careful whom we align ourselves with. Everyone felt like this person had the answer to their future. His charismatic tendency and personality was compelling and inspiring. I'm going to vote for him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going I'm to attach myself to his train because he's going somewhere in life it's a reminder to us to make sure that the people that we associate ourselves with and believe in and follow and read and have affection for are people of character people of sound and wise doctrine not just the latest fad but and truly someone worth our effort you know the scripture tells us in proverbs 12 26 that the righteous is cautious in friendship but the way of the wicked lead them astray. There must be a a love for all and a kindness toward all, but a cautiousness about our deepest associations. Well, in verse 42 and verse 43, when it mentions that he gains all of this power and all of this wealth, it's a reminder to us, see, to refuse to value what the world does. They... Everyone was in awe of the wealth and the power that he attained. Unfortunately, we find ourselves in awe of the same things. Shouldn't we be in awe of character more than wealth? Shouldn't we be in awe of holiness, wisdom, love more than power and fame? I was hearing an interview of a former NFL player who had a large contract but unfortunately didn't hold on to most of his money. And his, he was injured and was cut from his team, and he got a $60,000 severance package. Well, if you use that kind of money right, it could at least help you uh, through some difficult times in the future. He said he owed $6,000 in child support, and so he had $54,000. And as he's leaving the stadium when he was cut from the team, He was driving by a car dealership, and he said, it's right when the Hummer first came out. And he looked at it, and he stopped, and he talked, and he made a deal where he was able to get it for only $50,000. And he said, I just had to have it. Now, when you have to have something for status, uh, to feel better about yourself, You know, what we're doing is we're valuing what the world values. And that's why so many people were attracted to the Antichrist, because they valued what the world did rather than what the Lord did. And the Scripture tells us in Luke 16, 15, that what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Well, one final principle about living in the light light of the end reminds us, D, to trust God's timely and faithful intervention. What does it mean? At the end of verse 45, when it says, Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. It's essentially a reference to what we find in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And this verse says, And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth, and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The Antichrist is destroyed in the Valley of Megiddo, in the Battle of Armageddon, because the Lord Jesus returns. The Bible uses the imagery that he's riding on a white horse, and he comes at the end of time. And, but his very presence and the power of the Lord Jesus takes the Antichrist out, and we find later on in Revelation 19, verse 20, that he's thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. You can imagine that God's people that are on earth during that time, those who place their faith in Him, are waiting for some type of intervention, some type of deliverance. And the same is true with us and some of our circumstances you might be in. You're wondering, is God ever going to come through? Just like He did for God's people in the Old Testament, just like He will for God's people at the end of time. We must trust God's powerful intervention. Not only will God intervene for us in the second coming, He certainly intervened for us in His first coming. As we take a moment and bow together and enter into a time of response, I want to give many of you a chance who maybe a message like this is sort of jolting to some to make you wonder, hey, have I really nailed down where I am in my relationship with Christ? As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper in just a moment and as we prepare to enter into a time of response, let's bow before him as we consider what God would have us do. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Draw people to your truth in Christ's name.